good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach. Hope that you are doing great. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. We're going to do two verses today, but they are chocked full of controversy and meaning. Now, there are a lot of things that I think are strange that I don't understand, both outside and inside the Bible. For example, I have no idea how technology works. The guys on staff make fun of me. In my pocket, I have this magic rectangle And this magic rectangle sends a signal to, I don't know, a satellite. Again, I don't know how it works. And I can look at someone else's face across the world and talk to them. And in my mind, that is witchcraft. In my mind, that is magic. I have no idea how that works. I do not understand. Okay? I also don't understand how planes fly. People have tried to describe it to me and explain it to me. They say, well, Zach, the top of the plane wing is curved, and so the air going over it is less dense than the air below it, and that causes lift. And I look at them and I say, those are just words. Planes are heavy, right? They shouldn't be able to fly. I also know nothing about the human body. I had to go have a physical uh, last week, and so the doctor's like, touch your toes, put out your arms. He's pushing on my arms. Okay, now put your arms this way, and he pushes down on them, and I'm like, What are you checking for? You saw me walk in here, right? I didn't like slug, drag myself in here. I can move my body. What are you checking on? But this is also the case with things that are kind of strange and things I don't understand in the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is told by God that he is to walk around naked as a judgment sign for the uh, idolatry of Israel. Now, by the way, no one in here is called to that ministry, just in case you're wondering. God is not calling anyone to that ministry. But if I'm Isaiah, I'm thinking, seriously? Can, Can you at least... Can I tell me to get a tan first? Let me know when this is supposed to happen because this is a strange thing. Or there's this story uh, in the Old Testament where this prophet Elisha has some youths who are mocking him, some young kids, and they're making fun of him for what? For being bald. So they're mocking him for being bald, and then these bears come and they maul all of the children. Okay, this is a great bedtime story for the Bible for your kids. It's a great story, but it's weird. So even today on staff, there are times where I'll make fun of Carl Brower because he is bald. And I'm like, ha ha, you're bald. And then I'm looking over my shoulder because I know the she-bears are coming. I don't know when they're coming, but I know that they're coming. Now, understanding a little bit about those things, though, will completely change your life. To understand how technology works allows you to use it better. To understand how a plane flies allows you to have more confidence that you're not going to crash. To understand how the human body works allows you to be healthier. When you understand that what's going on with Isaiah is just not some weird event, but rather God is showing the shame of idolatry, it's really powerful. When you understand that what's going on with the story of the bears is actually, as these people are mocking God's prophet, there's a sense in which they're mocking God, these things start to take on a new meaning. So what the Apostle Paul is going to do here in Corinthians, before he gets into this long section we're about to get into on order in church worship... You're going to see it with gifts. You're going to see it with the roles of men and women. You're going to see this order in worship. He wants to give us some theology first. He wants to give us something to understand. Now, I love, my favorite sermons to preach are ones that are very fun and lighthearted. If I could just do my 1 Corinthians 7 sex sermon every Sunday, I would do that. That would be a lot of fun. This text, though, is extremely technical. Extremely technical. I always put a lot of research into sermons. I had to put extra research into this one. It is very technical because it right now is a big battleground in evangelicalism. There has been written in Protestantism, especially in America, over the last 10 years, probably more on a topic we're going to deal with today than almost any other subject. Dissertations have come out on verse 3. Monographs have come out on verse 3. Books and conferences have been done on verse 3. What does it mean to say that God is the head of Christ? Because Christ is himself fully God. 
And so we have to figure out what these things mean. So this is going to be very technical. If you like this kind of stuff, you would love seminary. If you hate this, don't go to seminary, okay? But this is going to be technical. But you'll find as we work through some of the weeds, there's a lot of really powerful things that God's going to do in our life because of that. Because Paul wants us to understand, and that's what brings the transformation. So let's pray, and then we will get into it. Dear God, we thank you that you're good, and that you've not written your words so that we might not understand it, but rather so that we might understand it. So I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you would protect us from confusion on a text that can be uh, often misinterpreted. Would you help us see your word rightly? We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Y'all ready? Verse 2 is not the controversial part. It's all in verse 3. We'll start with verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. Now, does this line shock anybody? The entire book of 1 Corinthians is Paul dealing with his problem children. That's who the church at Corinth is, okay? So the entire book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been saying, you're the worst. You're not listening to me. You're not keeping the traditions. You're not obeying me. You're going to temple prostitutes. You're getting drunk at communion. You're abusing spiritual gifts. You're exalting yourself over others. So this line is kind of shocking when he's like, you guys are killing it. Why does he say that? In fact, it's so shocking, some scholars have even said Paul's being sarcastic here. He couldn't possibly mean it. I think what's going on here is that Paul is being a good pastor. Before he rebukes them, he's winning some love points. This is what's called in rhetoric a captatio benevolentiae. It's something you would use at the beginning of a speech to kind of win your audience over so that then if you needed to say something difficult, they're more apt to listen. Do you know one of the reasons why I tell jokes when I preach? other than because I'm insecure and I want you to like me. Here's another reason. People come in defensive. They have their hands up, okay? And if I can get you to laugh, you'll drop your hand so I can hit you harder. That's why I do it. That's what Paul is going to do by saying this, this line here in verse 2. What he does is, if I have to rebuke somebody, I give them like a compliment sandwich. You know what this is? Like if I need to critique somebody, I will start with something good, then I'll slide in my critique, and I'll end with something good, okay? So I'll be like, hey, you are so punctual. I love how punctual you are. You're a terrible person, and you have really great teeth. And I'll just, I'll make this little sandwich. And they're eating it. They're thinking, mm, this is a compliment sandwich. And they bite into it, and it's not a compliment sandwich. You don't name the sandwich after the breads, which is the plural of an already plural word. Rather, it's this critique that's in there. So I'll say to somebody, hey, man, I really like your car. You're a terrible husband, but you have great taste in music. And it's a way to kind of let them know that I love them, but also sneak in a critique. And that's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying that there are those at Corinth that honestly want to grow, that honestly want to know. And so Paul probably is saying, listen, I know that you've messed things up, but some of you have sincere hearts. And so I want to commend you for that. And what does he want to commend them for? I commend you because you remember me in everything, and look at this next part, and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Roman Catholics go too far with tradition. In Roman Catholicism, tradition is put on the same level as Scripture. But we as evangelicals, especially if you grew up Baptist or charismatic or something like that, we have a tendency to de-emphasize tradition too much. We act like we can just come to the Bible without our assumptions. We come to the Bible without a worldview. We come to the Bible without our presuppositions. And that's ridiculous. You always read the Bible within a tradition. And Paul is not scared to use that language like some of us are. 2 Thessalonians 3.6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition, there it is, that you received from us. 
Or if you really want to be stressed out in talking to Roman Catholics, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So we have the written tradition of the apostles, but there's also this way as the apostles are teaching and planting churches where they're telling people this is the right way to interpret Scripture. How did early church leaders in the early church which is where early church leaders tend to be, how did they fight against heretics? You might say, well, Zach, they quoted the Bible. The heretics are quoting the Bible too. Every time there's a false teacher in Christianity, they're going to quote the Bible. So you're quoting the Bible and they're quoting the Bible. How do you know who wins? How do you know who gets it right? The reformers say whoever has the best interpretation. I think that's the correct answer. What the early church did, though, is they took a different tactic, which is also not a bad tactic, and they said the one who's right is the one who's interpreting it the way it's always been interpreted. If the apostles make disciples, and then they make disciples, and they make disciples, and they've always interpreted the Bible one way, and some weirdo comes up with some new way of interpreting the Bible, the burden of proof is against that person. So tradition is not bad, all right? Tradition is something that you can't get away from. So I'll use a political example. I'll use both sides, so that way I'm not, I'm not being biased. If someone came up and they said, Zach, I'm a Republican, but I hate guns, and I'm pro-choice, and I want huge government and more taxes. I would say, you don't get to determine what Republican means. The party's already determined that. You stand in a tradition. Or if somebody was a Democrat, and they said, Zach, I'm a Democrat, but I love guns, and I'm pro-life, and I'm anti-LGBTQ, and I'm, you know, for less taxes. I would say, you don't get to define what that means. The party's already determined that. So I say that to say, you don't get to determine what it means to be a Christian. Christianity has already determined that. I meet Christians all the time that say, I'm a Christian, but I hold this view. You're using the word wrongly. You don't get to pick. You stand within a stream of how Christians have interpreted this. Or, as I've often said here, don't believe any church doctrine that's not at least 400 years old. It's just a good way to protect yourself from following into the wind and waves of doctrine. Okay? Now, specifically, what Paul is going to be talking about with tradition here is how worship should look. You realize that when we gather for worship, we join with the angels in worshiping God. When we worship for all eternity, we will join with the angels in worshiping God. God cares about how worship is done, and we're going to see that and Paul's biblical tradition as we work through this text. Now, that's all I have to say about verse 2. Let's look here at verse 3. We're going to break it up into three parts. There's three little relationships given here. We're going to take them uh, one at a time. Verse 3a. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Look at that first phrase, but I want you to understand. Before Paul gets into what we should do in church, our practice, he's going to give us theology first. He wants us to understand. This is what's called in New Testament studies the indicative imperative. What does that mean if you failed English class? An indicative is just a sentence that indicates something. My name is Zach. Tacos are delicious. We're in a building. These are indicative sentences. They're just true, say, true statements, propositions. An imperative is a command. Come over here. Run. Get down on the ground, scumbag. Whatever it is. Those are imperatives. So what Paul does is he doesn't just give us commands. He gives us the truth first. He gives us theology. And then he bases his commands off of that. I was working for another church one time. And uh, there was a lot of people at that church that were not involved in serving the church in any way. And so some of the leadership said, we need to do a whole sermon series on serving. And me, being kind of the smart aleck that I am, was like, that's not going to work. Do you know why? That will get people out of guilt to serve for three weeks, and then they will stop. You have to give them theology. 
you have to help them understand. The reason people don't serve is because they don't realize how great God is. They don't realize by serving, they will be happier, that humans are happy when we're serving other humans. They don't realize the mission of the kingdom of God. They have a theology problem, not a service problem. And so Paul is going to say, you need to, before I give you commands of what worship should look like, you need to understand some theology that you, that, that you don't understand quite yet. Okay? That's what he's going to be doing. This is one of the reasons why at Parkway we're so big on theology. You have to have the theology or the life change won't happen. If you're believing false things about God, you don't have the ammunition to fight your sin. You don't have the ammunition to transform the world. Theologian and philosopher Philip Carey says this, The love of truth means that we want reality to rule our hearts. It is based on a deep and rather extraordinary optimism that says ignorance is not bliss because ultimately the truth about reality is the best news of all. It's an optimism that hardly makes sense at all unless God is truth, capital T. What is most fundamentally sad about the effort to prevent, prevent people from thinking too much is that it means giving up this optimism. It means being afraid that questions followed honestly lead to evil because the search for truth ultimately leads away from God. Okay? So Paul wants us to understand, and then he's going to jump into what we should understand. So here's the first one of these three examples. He says, the head of every man is Christ. Okay. I'm not an old man yet, but I'm getting there. Internally, I'm an old man. I'm cranky, right? Like I yell at kids for getting in my yard. That's good. I'm only 35. But there are a lot of changes that happen with old men. Let me give you a few of them. First of all, they start making old man sounds. Do you know what I mean? Something like this. It's like a locomotive is trying to get started all the time. Okay. Another thing old men do is they drive and they leave what on? Their blinker all the time. I'm like, he's going to turn right? He's going to, how old? Yep, it's an old man. He's not going to turn right. The blinker's on. They mention people's race when it's not relevant. Hey, Zach, I went out and checked the mail the other day. I talked to my neighbor. He's an Asian. And I'm like, was that relevant? Were you talking about Asia? Or that doesn't seem relevant. But one of the things that old men do is they don't keep up with changes in culture or in technology. Every time you see somebody texting with their flashlight on, every time you see something like that, you realize that person has not kept up with modern research. Now listen, to be a good student of theology, you have to keep up with what's going on in Christianity. Okay? There are new dissertations being written all over the country. And new finds, that we, new manuscripts that we found, you've got to stay on top of that. When someone writes a biblical commentary, it's only relevant for about 10 years. And then it becomes obsolete because new research has come out. So I say all that to say we're going to have to get into two of our main technical contentious things this morning. One is, what is the meaning of the word head? Okay? And the reason that's controversial is because the word head changes meaning throughout chapter 11. Right When it says that a woman should cover her head and that her husband is her head, that doesn't mean she should cover her husband. It, already, it changes meaning throughout the text. So one is, what does the word head mean? The second is, what does it mean to say that God is the head of Christ? Those are the places where we're going to have to spend a little extra time. So, are you ready to get technical? Okay. I want to show you a little slide dealing with this particular Greek word. Up top, you have the Greek word. It's kephale. 
is the name of the word. Underneath that, you have the English transliteration, which is just writing the Greek word in English letters. And then you have the meaning of the word. It means head. This word kephale, there's been a lot of research done on this. You see this word even in, in medical terms. Hydrocephalus is like water and swelling in the head. So we, we see this pop up in several places. This is the term that theologians fight each other over the table on. And so we're going to need some, to spend some time asking this question. What does the word in verse 3 head mean? And there are two major interpretations. There's a bunch of interpretations. The two big schools of thought is one says the word head means authority. The other one says that the word head means source, right? So deriving something from something else, like a source. You with me so far? Okay, let's look at the pros and cons of both interpretations. Let's start with authority, okay? The word here, head, means authority, For those that say that, here are the cases they give for that. First of all, that is going to be the traditional view from the Middle Ages onward. In the Middle Ages, they took it as authority, the Reformers took it as authority, and the modern church has taken it as authority. Now, that's not the way the early church took it. The early church did not take this text that way, but that is the way from the Middle Ages onward that the church has taken it. Additionally, some more really technical things. Wayne Grudem a very popular theologian, in 1985 published an article where he looked at 2,336 different instances of the word kephale in Greek, okay? So what he did is he looked through this huge online electronic Greek dictionary to try to find the meaning of the word head, and he found 2,336 instances of that word. Now, over 2,000 of those you could just disregard because they're just the meaning of the word head like your physiological head. Of the remaining 336, he said that 49, and then, he originally, and then he later corrected it to 41, he said 41 of those, the word means authority. So when you look at metaphorical uses of the word head, there's a big group of those that mean authority, and he said none of them mean the word source. Number three, and this next one is a very strong point in favor of this, Ephesians 5, through 24, look at how the word head is used here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice there's this idea of authority. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, meaning everything that's not sin, that a wife should submit to her husband. So here we have a clear instance used by the Apostle Paul of head meaning authority. Okay? Now, the case is against authority. First of all, 1 Corinthians 11.10. We're going to put it on the screen. I want to read it to you in the way that it is in the ESV, but there's there's contention over this. 1 Corinthians 11.10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's not exactly what it says in Greek. In Greek it says, the woman ought to have authority over her head, meaning it's reflexive. What, What Paul might be saying here is that as a woman prays and prophesies with her head covered in the assembly... She has a level of authority. She has a, she's over the angels, as humans are, because we alone bear the image of God. Another case against translating it as authority is that's how the heretic Arius translated it. The heretic Arius said, if the father has something that the son doesn't have, then the son is not homoousios, the same substance. He's just homoousios. He's similar. He's not exactly like God. He's, he's, he's not exactly God. He's just like God. That's one of the reasons the early church didn't take it that way. And then lastly, in Grudem's famous study, he said that the word never refers to source, and he was just wrong on that. Many scholars have found places where the word means source. Okay, So a good case for authority. It has some holes, but it's a strong case. 
Now, the second view is that the word means source. Now, again, I'm going to give you the arguments pro and against. I think the, the argument for authority is better than the argument for source. But let me give you, just to be fair, the arguments for and against. Cases for translating as source. First of all, it's theologically true. Men are created and saved by Christ. Eve came from Adam, and the Father eternally begets the Son. So theologically, that is true. Number two, in context here, there is this idea of source throughout 1 Corinthians 11. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve. 12. Look at this. For as a woman was made from man, there's a source. So man is now born of woman, there's a source. And all things are from God, there's a source. So there is some context there in 1 Corinthians 11 for translating it as source. Lastly, there are times in ancient Greek literature where head, kephale, can mean source. It's used to denote, for example, the mouth or the head of a river, where a river begins. Now, the cases against source, though, are so strong, I don't think you can translate it as source. I think authority has a better case. You have to nuance authority, because it means something different with the eternal son and the father, but the problems with translating it as source. Number one, finding places in Greek where kephale means source is super rare and almost non-existent. The linguistic evidence for that is really, really scant. Additionally, the head is not the source of the body. So the analogy breaks down. It's not as though if you're a pregnant woman, you grow a full-grown head, right, like a full-grown man's head, and then the body grows or something like that. The whole baby develops at once. In some places where the word supposedly means source, it also carries the notion of authority. If a mom is the source of her kid, she also is an authority over that kid. And lastly, this definition is often used by people who are carrying an agenda. They don't like that the Bible teaches that a wife should submit to her husband. And they don't like that the Bible limits the role of preaching to men in church to men. And therefore, they try to find some wiggle room by saying the word doesn't mean authority. Well, if that confuses you, forget all of that and I'll just give you my definition. Okay? I'll give you my definition of why I think the case for authority is stronger than source. But there needs to be a little nuance. So I've got my definition that we're going to put up there. My conclusion. There it is. It probably means first in a particular order. The word kephale is so flexible and it has so many nuances that it probably does not have the exact same meaning throughout this passage. Christ being the head of men, a husband being the head of his wife, and God being the head of Christ are all different types of relationships. So we need to qualify what this word means in each relationship. You see, with a husband and a wife, authority makes sense because you have two beings. What do you do, though, that God is only one being? See, we have to change this a little bit regardless. There is nothing like God and God is not like anything else. So we have to nuance this as we go. Why is Paul talking about all this headship language? Here's why. According to New Testament scholar David Garland, what individuals do to their physical head in worship reflects negatively or positively on their metaphorical head. So, with all that in mind, let's start with this first relationship where it says that Christ is uh, the head over men or over mankind, over humans. A good translation there would be preeminent. A good translation there would be preeminent. Christ is preeminent over men. Let me explain this in a few ways. First of all, Christ is your creator. Do you understand that? The Bible says that all things were made through him and for him. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is your creator. Zach, why do I have to obey Christ? Why can't I do what I want? Because you didn't make you. That's why. The reason we obey God is very, very simple. It's because he is creator and we're creation. But I want to live my life. You don't have a life apart from him. He gave you that life. He keeps breath in your lungs. He keeps you in being. He keeps you existing. Should he withdraw his hand, you would cease to be. He is over us. Additionally, if you're a Christian, he owns you twice. 
If you're a Christian, not only did he create you and you ran away, he then bought you back. So he made you and he saved you. He redeemed you. Jesus owns you two times. You own yourself zero times. Okay? Additionally, there is probably this connotation of authority in this particular relationship. Christ is the authority over the church. He is the head of the church. When we gather for communion, we don't just celebrate with each other. Christ, in a sense, is here in a special way because he is the head over the church. We obey Christ. Okay, that's the first one. You with me so far? Tired, bored. Let's do this. Everybody take a big breath. Oh, theology's fun and not scary. See, just relax. You might have to listen to this sermon more than once. Let's get into the next relationship here. The head of a wife is her husband. Okay, the head of a wife is her husband. Now, again, this gets tricky. In Greek, it literally just says this. Head of a woman, the man. Okay? Head of a woman, the man. The reason it's tricky is because in English, we have the word woman and we have the word wife, and they're different. A woman is just a generic adult female. A wife is married. Same way with man and husband. A man is a generic adult male. A husband is married. In Greek, you don't have that. The word woman and wife are the same word, which makes sense, right? My wife is my woman. That's why I'm always like, hey, woman, you know, and I'm her man. So the words are the same. This is also, as a fun fact, why there's debate over whether or not you can have a female deacon. Because the word woman, gune, gunaikos, where you get the word gynecology, the study of women's disease, that word can mean woman or wife. And so is it talking about a female deacon, a woman, or is it talking about the wife of a deacon? You see where it gets tricky. Now, just to be clear, let's, let's understand the theology, though, of what's going on. A wife is called to submit to her husband, but women generally, theologically, are not called to just submit to any random man, okay? So if you're just some guy, and you go up to some girl here at the church and start telling her what to do, the elders will come at you with the north, okay? They will attack. You don't get to do that. That's not the point. A husband has authority over his wife. Men do not have authority over women generally. Now, Paul might be meaning uh, women and men here, because as he's addressing a church context, he might not just be addressing those who are married. He's probably saying, women, this is what you should look like in church. Men, this is what you should look like in church. So he might be doing these broader categories. A good translation of kephale here is foremost. Here it probably does carry the connotation of authority. Let me say it another way. Gender distinctions are not bad. Okay? They're good. Our culture hates gender distinctions. Our culture loves this like amorphous, androgynous, everyone should look like Michael Jackson or something like this. Okay, our culture hates gender distinctions. God likes them. You realize that Eve doesn't come as a result of the fall. It's not like there's just Adam and he sins and then boop, a woman pops out and he's like, oh no, this is a roommate that knows, doesn't know as much about sports or something. That's not, that's not what's happening. It was always God's plan to have two genders. That glorifies God. Let me say it stronger. You glorify God the most as a man when you're being a man, when you act like a man and you talk like a man and you look like a man. Now, I don't mean that the way the world defines man, where you eat glass and beat your chest and are mean to people. I mean it in a biblical sense of manhood. Christ can be very tough and aggressive when he's talking to the Pharisees, but he can also be very kind and tender when he's talking to a woman or to children. And you glorify God most as a woman when you look like a woman, act like a woman, and be like a woman. That, that glorifies God. Again, not the way our culture says that a woman should be, which is just a sex object, but rather when you're kind, you're gentle, you're godly, etc. So gender distinctions are not bad. They're God-glorifying. Do you know why I have a beard? Well, one, to intimidate you, of course. 
Two, because my wife likes it, right? So if it gets me more kisses, then I'm going to have a beard. Three, it forms a COVID mask. I can push it over my nose, and I can walk into places, and I don't, I don't have to deal with it. But another thing I like about it is if I'm ever talking with some angry feminist, there is one more difference between us that you can see on each other's faces. Okay? God likes gender distinctions. Eve is taken from Adam. Okay? God did create Adam first. That's one of the reasons Paul gives for why a woman can't be a pastor. He doesn't say things that churches say today like, well, the women back then just didn't have the education, blah, blah, blah. Part of Paul's reasoning is he bases it on the creation order. God has always wanted men to lead, and a wife is called to submit to her husband, which we saw in the Ephesians passage. Maybe here's a good example of this. I have two hands. You see that? I'm not trying to trick you. This isn't some sort of magic or something. I have two hands. Okay? They're both equally hands. You see that? You see how they're both equally hands? Okay. Uh, but when I go to do something, one of the hands leads and the other hand follows. If I go to hit a baseball, my right hand leads. Or if I go to hit a golf ball, my right hand leads. Yes, I realize you pull with your back and your shoulder blow, but my right hand leads, okay? When I go to shoot a gun, rifle or pistol, yes, I know you shoot under your dominant eye, not your dominant hand, but my dominant eye is my dominant hand, so my right hand leads. They're both equally hands. I need both of them, but one of them leads in the same way A husband and a wife are equal in value. They're equal in personhood. God loves men and women equally. But they are called to different roles, specifically in the home and in the church. Okay? In the home and in the church. My son and I were watching uh, The Avengers because he likes watching superhero shows. And there was a scene where something explodes and Captain America takes his shield and he covers up Black Widow, who's the chick. Right? And so I looked to my son and I said, son, did you see that? And he's eating popcorn. He's like, see what? And I was like, all right, we got to back up. So I rewind and I'm like, I want you to watch what Captain America does. And he shields her to protect her. And we had a conversation about it. It was a teaching moment that you one day will be called to protect a woman. You'll be called to lay down your rights, maybe even put yourself at risk for the sake of her. Your role does not stifle her. Your role causes her to flourish. Okay? Your role does not stifle her. It causes her to flourish. Now... We have to get into the place where there's so much controversy and so much confusion. What does it mean to say, and the head of Christ is God? Okay, let's get into the weeds. You ready to do a little Trinitarianism 101? Okay. We believe that God is a trinity. What that means is there is only one being. There's only one substance, God. And yet he is somehow three persons at the same time. What we need to ask is this question, okay? What is it that makes the members of the trinity different? You ever wondered that? If they're the same one God, the same substance, all the same stuff, the same one being who is God, one mind, one will, what makes the Father different from the Son and the Son different from the Spirit and the Spirit different? What are the differences between the members of the Trinity? What are the distinctions between them? You might come up with several answers that are not great. Let me give you some common answers. Some people say the only difference between them is their name. We call one Father, we call one Son, we call one Spirit. Well, that's not a real difference. If one of you calls me Zach and someone else calls me Bob, there's no difference there. It's just nominal. You're just using a name. By the way, my favorite comment that I've got as I'm going to be leaving Parkway at the uh, the end of the year is somebody said, Jeff, we're really going to miss you. (laughs) And I thought, you're not going to miss me. So just calling me that name, though, doesn't make me him. So the difference of the members of the Trinity can't be nominal, not just by name. Now, you might say, well, Zach, don't they do different things? The sun comes down 
He dies on the cross, not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit's the one that's given at Pentecost. That's, that's a great point. But here's where I'd push you back, or I'd push back on you. What makes them distinct before any of that happens? What makes them distinct back in eternity? Back when they're not doing all this saving mankind, creating the world stuff. Just back in eternity, what makes them different then? You see, the, the differences of the members of the Trinity has to be actual, not just functional. The Trinity is something God is, not just something that he does. The heretic Sibelius said that the members of the Trinity have different jobs. The father puts on his father hat, he does father things. The, the, then he puts on his son hat, he does son things. Then he puts on his spirit hat and does spirit things. That's not what makes the members of the Trinity dis, d- different or distinct. Now, you might say what makes the members of the Trinity distinct is that maybe they have different attributes. Maybe they have different attributes. So now we've got to get further into the weeds and do a little philosophy. Are you ready? Let's just have fun. If you're confused, you can listen to this again. Let's do a little philosophy. In philosophy, which is the language that the early church is using when it comes to the Trinity, there is a difference between something's substance and its attributes. Okay? A substance is what something is. It's what, wait for it, stands under, hence the term substance, everything else. I'll give you an example. I, the individual man, Zach, I'm a substance. A dog is a substance. Okay? A horse is a substance. A tree is a substance. I'm a substance, the individual man, Zach, but I also have different attributes. I have things about me, and those things can change, and I'm still who I am. I'll give you an example. If I lose my hair, am I still Zach? Yes. I didn't hear you. Yes? If I lose my beard, am I still Zach? You might want to say no, but no, yeah, you might want to say no. Yes, I'd still be Zach. If I lost an arm, would I still be Zach? I'd lose the attribute of having two arms. I'd lose the attribute of having a beard. I'd lose the attribute of having hair, but I'd still be Zach. If I gained or lost weight, would I still be Zach? Yes, notice the Zach, the substance, stays the same. The attributes can change. Or if we take a dog, okay? Let's, let, let's, let's take a dog. That's the substance. That's why, by the way, that's why we say a dog is brown. We don't say brownness has a dog instantiated under it. I say that, but you don't say that, Okay? The dog is the substance. It can have longer or shorter ears. That's an attribute. It can be brown or black or white or a Dalmatian. It can be spotted. That's an attribute. It can be bigger or smaller. That's just an attribute. But the substance is the dog. Everybody with me on what a substance is versus what an attribute is? With me? Okay, now listen to what I'm about to say. When it comes to God, those are the exact same thing. I can lose my hair and still be Zach. God can't lose his goodness and still be God. I can lose my beard and still be Zach. God cannot lose his eternality and still be God. God technically doesn't have any attributes. He's simple. God is just God. We come up with attributes to try to describe a being who's indescribable, but those are all the same thing for God. So you cannot say, and it would be Nicene heresy to say that the Father possesses an attribute that the Son does not possess. They possess the same attributes because they're the same substance. And furthermore, they possess them to the same degree. The Father and the Son are equally strong. The Father and the Son are equally eternal. The Father and the Son have equal authority. You can't start changing an attribute or else you are changing substance with the traditional Orthodox Nicene definition of the Trinity. You see why this is why the heretic Arius tried to use verse 3 to talk about all that. What is it that makes the members of the Trinity different? It's not what they have. They have the same stuff. It's how they have it. It is their what's called relation of origin. Their fromness. The Father is eternally unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten. And the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. You see that the Father has a relation of origin to none. 
But the son has a relation of origin in the father. Okay? Or to get more technical, their personal properties. The father possesses paternity, the son possesses filiation, and the spirit possessive passive, possesses passive spiration. Now, I say all that to say, whatever the end of verse 3 means, whatever the word kephale means, it is not saying that back in eternity, the son has anything less than the father. Okay? I'm giving you the historic traditional view of the Trinity. The second Helvetic confession says this. We also condemn all heresies and heretics who teach that the Son and the Holy Spirit are God in name only. We talked about that. And also that there is something created and subservient or subordinate to another in the Trinity. And that there is something unequal in it, greater or less. Something corporeal, corporeally conceived. Something different with respect to character or will. Okay? Now, that's the deep theology. You can listen to our lectures on Trinitarianism. You can listen to all of that. You don't need to know all of that to avoid heresy in this passage. Do you know why? Look what it says. It says, and the head of what or whom? Christ is God. Notice, it's not saying in God's interpersonal relationships, ad intra, back in eternity, the Son and the Father. It's not dealing with all that Trinity stuff. What it's trying to say is, Christ, the hypostatic union, the one who comes down and takes on humanity, Christ does submit to God. Why? Because he submits in his humanity, specifically. Christ, in his earthly ministry, is obeying the will of the Father. In his deity, he has the same will. When he says, not my will be done, but thine. In his deity, he and the Father have the same will. But when it comes to his humanity, he is doing what Adam did not do. Adam said, I'm not going to submit. I'm going to do what I want. Jesus is saying, as this human in the line of Adam, in the line of David, I am going to obey and I am going to succeed where humanity has failed. I am going to succeed where humanity has failed. So it's, it's important that you distinguish the difference of thinking of the son back in eternity or in the future here versus his mediatorial role as the Christ, as the God-man, specifically submitting in his humanity during his earthly ministry. Okay? This is something that's unique. In fact, the theologian John Calvin says this about Christ in the future once his mediatorial work is done. He says this, Then also God shall cease to be the head of Christ, for Christ's own deity will shine of itself, although it is yet, as yet it is covered by a veil. This is, so, so you just need to distinguish Christ as the God-man, specifically in his humanity, in his earthly ministry, versus when we're talking about him and his eternal deity. That's how you avoid Arius on the one hand, but you also understand a word, head, that typically does mean authority. Now that sounds all so technical. Who cares, Zach? How does this help me in my marriage? How does this help me in my life? How does this help me with my kids? One, we're not here to worship you. We're here to worship God. What you think about him, if you just learn new information today, that's perfect. That's what God wanted you to do. But I want to give you something that's really practical here. What this means is your salvation is not dependent upon your obedience. It's dependent upon Christ's obedience. You have failed and I have failed. And so what Christ has done is he has obeyed on our behalf. This is why you can't add to your own righteousness. You can't make God happier with you based on cleaning up your actions. Jesus has already been perfectly righteous and you cannot be better than perfect. He's already done all of this. Your salvation, your justification, your righteousness is outside of you. It's not here it's, as the Reformers would say, say, a justitia aliana, an external righteousness, an outside righteousness. It's not dependent on you. I don't know how to say this strong. If you never get over your pride, God's love for you doesn't change. If you never get over your anxiety or fear, God's love for you doesn't change. 
If you, men, never get over your lust, God's love for you does not change. If you, women, never get over your insecurity and comparing yourself to other women because you find your identity in your looks, God's love for you doesn't change. When you realize that Christ has submitted to the Father, that he, as the perfect human, has submitted and has done all the things that we should have done, but we didn't do. It takes all of the burden off of your back so you realize Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. He's all I have. He's done everything. I'm not basically kind of good. I'm not basically kind of good after conversion. I am a sinner. God have mercy on me, a sinner. Christ has done it all. He has fulfilled the role of Adam. Adam failed. He succeeded. He has fulfilled the role of David. David killed a guy and committed adultery. Jesus has succeeded. He has fulfilled the role of Moses. Moses doesn't get to enter the promised land because of his disobedience. Christ brings us into a new promised land. Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Abraham, etc. He obeyed where we disobey, and that's why you can rest. You now have your life to love God and love others and do what you want that's not sin, Because you don't have to do anything. What are you going to do now that Christ has done everything for you? That's the power of this passage. What Paul is trying to say is, when men rebel against Christ, that dishonors God in the assembly. When a wife rebels against her husband, that dishonors God in the assembly. And had Christ disobeyed the father, that would have dishonored him. But instead, he obeyed him. He obeyed him as his head during his earthly ministry. And therefore, he has secured our salvation. What you need to understand before you get any of the rules of chapter 11 is you need to understand this, that God has done it for you. The reason we worship the way God wants us to worship, the reason that we conduct services the way that he wants us to conduct services, is it's ultimately because we're forgiven people. We're a loved people. I don't think most of us view God that way. I think most of us view it like this. Imagine that you're a kid in an orphanage and you get adopted. And you know at some point you can be a bad enough kid where your parents will put you back up for adoption. That's how most of us relate to God. We think, okay, God saved me. He adopted me. But there's this asterisk next to it. If I'm not a good enough kid, he might put me back up for adoption. Maybe I was never really his kid anyway. Maybe he wanted to adopt someone else instead, and they just missed. But when you realize that God has set his unconditional love on you, there is no asterisk. God decided to save you when he knew all your sins back in eternity. He knew all the sins you would ever commit, and he decided to save you. He doesn't regret saving you. But Zach, I'm a screw-up. That's who God saves. That's who God saves. He doesn't pick the best and the brightest. He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this text. I pray that you would bring greater understanding of your word, especially on difficult and technical issues. Would you forgive us for our sin of trying to improve upon the righteousness of Christ? Would you forgive us, not for seeking sanctification, that's a good thing, but for seeking it in our own strength instead of relying and resting on you? We need you. Would you be with us? It's for your name and your glory that we pray. Amen.